Hi, everyone. Radhika Jones here, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. With award season in full swing, there's no better time to become a Vanity Fair subscriber. Let our editors take you behind the scenes of this year's nominated films, from prestige indies to major blockbusters, plus exclusive coverage of Hollywood's biggest events. Visit VanityFair.com today and save 10% on a yearly subscription for a limited time with promo code OSCARS. That's VanityFair.com, promo code OSCARS, for 10% off a year of insights and access you won't find anywhere else. Subscribe today while this offer lasts through March 31st, 2024. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me! I'm the king of the world! There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Um, We're winding down the year, which is very exciting. What year deserves a send-off more than 2020? So we're going to talk a little bit about some more end-of-year stuff. We're going to talk about uh, our uh, TV critic Sonia Soraya's top 10 list. Sonia couldn't join us today, but we're going to talk about her list anyway and our own TV picks from the year and some movies that are out and then also some drama in the news, uh, both about our beloved Oscars and um, Warner Brothers. It's, it's, I, I tweeted last night that I feel like the drama among streaming services has kind of made up for the lack of celebrity gossip this year, but maybe <laughs> nothing can actually make up for that. Um, I guess we should start with the newsy stuff first. And since uh, we're recording right after Christopher Nolan has gone out and like dropped a bomb on the studio where he's made like all of his movies, at least mm-hmm. like, most of them. So HBO Max announced last week, or Warner Brothers announced last week, that all of their movies would go to HBO Max the same day that they would open in theaters for all of 2021, which is uh, in many ways like a pandemic cost-saving move. Like it's, you know, obviously something like Judas and the Black Messiah, which is coming out early next year, is not going to have a proper theatrical release. But like Dune, which is scheduled for next November, very well could. Um, So there's a ton of reporting on it. If you're listening to this, you've probably read some of it about... uh, A, why they did it, and B, why people are so pissed off. But it does seem like Christopher Nolan's comments kind of opened up floodgates in a way. Like, he has been such a loyal Warner Brothers filmmaker. They released Tenet in theaters basically just to make him happy. And then he goes and, um, you know, shit talks them in the press, which is not something he usually does. So what do you guys think about how this is all blowing up? Like, is this an internal Hollywood drama that doesn't affect people that much? Or do you guys buy that this is kind of the future of movie going at stake? 
I think he was sort of careful in his shit talking because he did say like Warner Brothers was the number one studio any filmmaker would want to go to. Sure, sure, sure. Sort of implying that maybe it still could be that. But then he called HBO Max the worst streaming platform, (laughs) Uh, which, you know, I think certain like cinephiles would disagree because it actually does have a really good catalog, especially of older films, which Netflix lacks. Um, But. I think what he was really speaking to was the numbers, which like mm-hmm. I didn't realize until, you know, reading stuff this week that like only 8.6 million activated subscriptions to HBO Max. And there are like some tens of millions of HBO subscribers who don't haven't activated their HBO Max yet. So there's been a total breakdown in that communication of like how the service is supposed to work and can work for people who already pay for HBO. And so that's what I feel like he was really getting at was like, you're going to like limit this. And I know that the plan is like, well, if we release these huge movies, more people will subscribe, which like I think is true to some extent. But Mm -hmm. so I think what it really got to rather than Nolan, you know, angry at his direct collaborators at Warner Brothers was the continued frustration over like Wall Street's control of entertainment companies and always looking for scale and being obsessed with streaming services above anything else and not actually caring about the theatrical experience or or movie making really at all. Yeah. And so this one very vociferous critique of one company really, as you said, Katie, did seem to open the doors to a larger conversation about the conglomeration, the corporatization, the further corporatization of, uh, the entertainment industry, which, uh, you know, actual quality of entertainment seems to sink further and further on the list of priorities, um, which for a filmmaker who has made a ton of money for the corporate overlords in Nolan, uh, but also tried to maintain an artistic integrity must be particularly frustrating to say nothing of like, you know, smaller filmmakers who uh, just want a chance to sit at the table for a second. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Warner Brothers, I think more than any other studio at this point, had the filmmaker relationship reputation. Like, it was making a lot of Christopher Nolan's movies. Like, it was financing, like, Ben Affleck when he was emerging as a director. I don't know why. Those are the two people I immediately think of. But, like, they felt like the place that was, like, about cultivating relationships and letting Christopher Nolan make Dunkirk and cost a fortune and, like, succeed. And it does feel like especially a betrayal on this level. Like, if Disney did this with, like, all the Marvel movies, it would almost be less surprising because those are so much, like, more obviously a product than so much of what's coming out on Warner Brothers. So so hopefully the way Nolan is thinking of it, and I think it's fair to assume this, like it's not just about him. It's about people who have less power than he does, who made a deal that their movie would be released in theaters and who would make a lot more money. Like that's a lot of the reporting too, is that these agents are like, you promise my client money on the, the back end, which is, you know, what you get paid after the movie um, clears a profit. You get the theatrical receipts, which can be a ton of money. Um, I don't know how they're going to work that out. Like, that's not for me to figure out. But uh, it's really complicated. And it is kind of a betrayal of the filmmakers who who got in business with the studio. Well, and especially relationship wise, the Hollywood Reporter write up of all of this that I read that included the Nolan comments both had the information about, you know, which executives cooked up this this uh, scheme, uh, how it was about trying to curry favor with corporate overlords, you know, because Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers and HBO, you know, are still, I think, struggling under this corporate ownership that has done a lot. You know, there was a lot of more conversation around this with HBO in terms of the fact that they had to like double production of their output. You know, I, I've heard, I've heard a lot from behind the scenes at HBO, how like how rapidly the culture changed with recent corporate mergers and all of that sort of thing. Well, like, and their, their CEO, Richard Plepler, who'd like really overseen the whole golden age left in uh, like early 2019, I think. So that's the, that's the big catalyst for that. Right. 
Well, it, they were they were purchased, right? So like, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, he was the guy who like you would think could have like protected them, protected and so, them, and exactly. then he left. Yeah, 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 yeah. So then the other thing that was interesting in that THR article was the the order of events in that Warner Brothers informs the agencies in the morning and it's up to the agencies to tell their clients what's happening and then and I know that that's true because I know some people who work to the agencies who knew that news before we the the press knew it you know mm. what I mean so they they call the agencies and then they let the press know and then if the agency hasn't gotten in touch with their client their client finds out about this via the press you know rather than like a call from Warner Brothers oh, to imagine that some shitty of their... morning for all those yeah. assistants rolling those yeah. calls at like the agencies who have to like call uh-huh. Christopher Nolan not yeah. I'm sure an assistant didn't but like someone has to call Christopher Nolan who doesn't even have a cell or, phone and, or the, like, the, the know, assistant whatever. who has to call Christopher Nolan's assistant and track yeah. them down and like the <laughs> clock is ticking before exactly. the announcement goes out exactly Exactly. So I think even even just like the handling of it, if you want to talk about relationships, the handling yeah. of it, like I can understand, um, you know, you you want to do it quickly if you're Warner Brothers because you don't want like Christopher Nolan to talk about it before you've issued your press release. Yeah. But that still just feels like a really dicey game to play with, with in terms of like feeling like you're taking care of your talent. And the fact that they did all these negotiations with um, Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot because uh, Wonder Woman got announced to go to HBO Max like two weeks ago or so. Right, um, right. And so they like negotiated a ton of money, I think, according to The New York Times and also got all this special treatment. And then like, you know, John Chu, who directed In the Heights, was like, what the fuck? Like why? I, he didn't say that, but I imagine he's one of the people who was like, why did not I I not get similar treatment as a valued Warner Brothers filmmaker. Exactly. Yeah. And and then there's, uh, you know, other stuff further down the um, the hierarchy in terms of like residuals. Mm-hmm. And if something doesn't come out theatrical, that changes that structure. I, I mean, it might even completely occlude it. Like it might it might just kind of obviate it. So, you know, and, and I think about like one of the many things that was wrong with Quibi from the onset was that that was a thing that was kind of secretly set up to circumvent union rules and to basically cut pay for talent and people behind the camera while still in in theory earning massive profits for the people uh, at the top. This is not a direct one-to-one correlation, but it's, it's part of a continuing trend. You know, we had Cassie DaCosta on last week talking about like labor in Hollywood and, and this is another, I mean, it's it's an issue for Christopher Nolan's authorship, but it's also a, a sort of more granular labor issue for other people because the streaming stuff is is, is a new enough um, model that there aren't all these like old, hard and fast, you yeah. know, union regulated rules about how to pay people. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's funny because reading reading that. I just read that one THR write up of it, but like they called it Warner Brothers fault, like faltering streaming service HBO Max. And I just like I did like you, Richard, I did like a double take because like that was not my perception of how HBO Max was doing. Maybe just because yeah. I like the flight attendant so much. So well, like, because like, I use the HBO app, like I, I still subscribe to cable, God help me, and subscribe to HBO via cable. And I use the app all the time to access the stuff. And at some point, my HBO, whatever HBO Go, I guess, stopped working and it said, get HBO Max. So I did that and it was simple but i guess lots of people weren't doing that and it's been totally unclear if you're watching hbo through your cable box that that's one thing you should do right and i have hbo max not to i have hbo max through my hulu subscription oh see that's confusing you know (laughs) so like some of the hbo content is available in hulu but sometimes i have to go to hbo max proper to access it that's confusing i have it through my aetna health plan Uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, you have, you have to do a copay, weirdly. For, uh, I have a streaming service deductible, so I need to subscribe to a certain number before they start paying. Yeah, doing this, with this right after open enrollment really is an extra layer. <laughs> yeah. That should be included in our open enrollment. But if you, like, if you think about the various streaming services that have launched, like I would have said that Apple was more vulturing than HBO if you had to ask me like with the exception of Ted Lasso which is like a genuine hit for them like I mean Apple you know, may, may, very well may be we don't really know do we right so yeah it's it's you know it's so interesting because you're you're like okay they they've spent so much time and resource resources thinking about how to launch these various streaming platforms to compete with and you know even even uh Disney Plus I think people are saying that that's underperforming and a lot of that has to do with they're not able to flood it with as much new content as they want to you know we should be knee deep in Marvel TV series at this point and we're not sure. because of covid that's coming so, soon right like next year is when that's going to launch uh, in theory uh yeah. you know who knows it's supposed to but yeah i mean i don't know that you would i would describe any of these newish would be netflix platforms as as smash runaway hits yet so it's interesting to me to call out hbo max as the worst streaming platform because i'm like <laughs> i don't know they all have their challenges right now they're all they're all in the struggling phase which i imagine these corporations account for when they when they launch these things yeah you know? i mean they're in the struggling phase and then also the blockbusters are struggling through power you know through something that no one had power over and that is a, a nightmare to deal with do we think in terms of the streaming wars that like every would-be competitor just got there too late, that Netflix had already achieved such saturation that it would, mm. would have been impossible to like make a second one of those or an actual viable competitor. I mean, you know, look, it's it's still early days, relatively speaking. But like we've seen a lot of smaller streaming services stumble and fail and go away. Um, I don't think that's going to happen for HBO Max anytime soon, nor for Apple TV Plus. But like, I don't know. It just sometimes it feels like this is kind of an unwinnable fight. Yeah. Well, the the idea is that you you like you know the non insane non member of the press average American or worldwide subscriber doesn't have to subscribe to all of them. I do because I feel like I need to be able to watch everything. But like then you know when you're making your choice, this is obvious. This is business one one. Sorry guys, but like when when it, when you're making your choices, you're like, what's the added value? You know what I mean? The only the only I am not being paid by Disney to say this, but the only streaming service that I can think of that did the best at communicating their added value is Disney Plus because the Disney brand is so strong yeah but like i don't think you're sitting at home and you're thinking like oh all those warner brothers movies i love they're definitely going to be on hbo max you know like i don't think there's a one-to-one branding recognition um between those things and so i know a lot of people because they're like frustrated they can't find the movie they want on netflix or on hulu they just rent on Amazon Prime. I actually think there's probably been like a boom to Amazon Prime because as these various like streaming platforms try to like hoard their individual uh, goodies, like Peacock's like we've got, you know, we've got the rights to this and HBO Max like we've got the rights to this. Amazon Prime's like, well, if you have $3.99, we have almost all of it here for you. So, you know, once again, I'm not Wait, being paid by Amazon. like rent something one yeah. by one. You mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, yeah. I'm not being paid by Amazon either. But like, that's something I've seen where like as Netflix loses a lot of its library content to these other platforms, Hulu as well, then people are just sort of like, well, I'll just, I'll just rent it. Jeez, I'm not going to subscribe to a whole new platform to be able to watch this one movie I want to watch. So... Yeah, I, I had another sort of thought experiment last night. Like, I just made I made a joke about like STX trying to like snap up Christopher Nolan, <laughs> being like, you know, you you, you want to come over to, to us, which I don't think that could ever happen. But like, 
does Nolan go somewhere else? And if he does, where does he go? And I, I think it's just, I, I don't know if there's another studio other than Disney that's really, I mean, maybe universal, but like really equipped at this point to, you know, I think about like all, like we were joking a couple of weeks ago about like all the big name, certain kind of right centrist writers fleeing to Substack and just because they don't want to be edited or whatever. Does Nolan have another home or because he put so much work into cultivating this over the last 20 years at yeah. Warner Brothers? I mean, I'm starting to wonder if he has the power to get them to change their mind um, or yeah. like it, it seems like they could backtrack in some way being like, all right, we'll do this through June. Like we're not going to commit to opening Dune day and date because by November it seems reasonable to think we might be able to go to the movie theater safely, um, you know, make it clear, more clear that it's like a pandemic only thing than the future. Because I think this is the future many people have feared for a long time. And rightly, um, it just came really fast and kind of all at once. And legendary, the production company also has some leverage in that, too, because yeah. they co-produce Dune and um, the second like the third, fourth, whatever Godzilla Kong movie, yeah, um, yeah. which that is less of a, of a bargaining chip. What if the Godzilla Kong is. movie is what saves movie theaters? <laughs> like, we have to look back and thank them. Well, it's it's interesting because uh, once again, to cite, I, I want to keep citing this one article because I don't know how much this was like editorialized or whatever, but like, you know, they, they described the Warner Brothers executives looking at what they described as like a weak 2021 slate, movie slate. And I looked at the slate and I'm like, is this? Weak compared, I mean, I don't know. It doesn't seem weaker than any other. In the Heights is in here. I don't know. This doesn't seem that weak to me. So, like, Dune, like. I don't know if In the Heights has the same, like, uh, cachet with the rest of us among the three of us. Movie of the year. (laughs) I mean, that's my bet. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I guess I'm excited that I get to finally see In the Heights uh, allegedly soon. So, you know. Yeah, although that's the one that I want to see in theaters the most. Like, it's like when I imagine myself returning to a movie theater, that would be a great one to be able to have there and I still might be able to I yeah. know I know yeah but I like I don't know I don't think that their slate looks you know they don't have um, they don't have like a Fantastic Beast I guess they don't have a they don't have a Chris or Nolan <laughs> or like a, where where are all the Justice League things like is Aquaman 2 the one we're waiting for next or like the Batman is not going to come the next Batman. year I guess that's 2022 yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, which was spo- it was supposed to be next year and it had to get bumped, I assume. Right, right. So they don't have like a Justice League movie. That's true. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you have to like feel pity the mega corporations. Like it's a shitty year. Everyone's making really shitty decisions. There's no, no one wanted Wonder Woman to only be on HBO Max on Christmas, but that's where we landed. So I don't know. Like it, you you hope that in a year we'll kind of look at all this like stumbling around as just like what we had to do, but we we found our way out of it when society kind of resumed. Right. And I, uh, what I do appreciate, though, I mean, Christopher Nolan, I think we all have had fun from time to time at like rolling our eyes at how persnickety he gets at certain things. But like, OK, the, here's an artist who has the power to say something without, you know, like, yeah, uh, like if Warner Brothers drops him, someone else is going to pick Christopher Nolan up. You know what I mean? So like he can actually speak about this, whereas there's so many other I know other people have spoken out, but like there's so many other people who just like don't have the power to express their frustration at the way the artists have been impacted um, by this business move. So, yep. Well, we can move on from uh, Christopher Nolan versus Warner Brothers to another feud, a much smaller scale feud, maybe not even a feud that uh, broke out last week. Variety reported on December 1st that the uh, the Oscars were basically considering, like, planning for an in-person Oscar ceremony. Like, it's been moved to the end of April. I think we all know that, like, things might be very different by then. Um, you know, they were hoping more movies might open by then. I think now the hope is just that people can be there. 
But right after that got reported, the Hollywood Reporter basically came out saying, contrary to report, no decision has been made to move forward with its in-person ceremony. Um, They were both essentially saying the same thing, which is that, like, nobody knows and there's not really a good way to figure it out for right now. Um, But did you you guys feel like you learned anything from this uh, little back and forth about what will happen with the Oscars? Well, I feel like at least maybe people have learned that, like, making hard and fast declarations of something that's going to happen in this current era of ours is like a fool's mm-hmm. errand. Like, oh, like yeah. there, there's no point in, I don't even know why they even, I mean, maybe they're just not trying to like attract advertisers or not scare advertisers off or something. So they felt mm-hmm. like they had to say something, mm-hmm. but like it's six months away. Like there is, you know, vaccine news in the air. Like, I, I don't know. It just, it felt like a kind of a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing, you know, um, yeah. we're kind of right back to where we were. Um, Which is kind of what this podcast has been for six months. We've been like, the Oscars are coming. (laughs) I mean, but I do think that one thing that that I thought was interesting that came out of that uh, conversation uh, was just I saw a lot of people saying that they really liked how the Emmys went. You know, I Uh know that like the ratings were really not good and and whatever. But like from a production standpoint, from the satisfaction one gets of watching someone give us an acceptance speech. And granted, it's a narrow subset of people in this world that take that kind of satisfaction. But we three are are among them. So it was just interesting that that people were like, well, no, if it it goes, if it works like that, then that's fine. You know, obviously, we prefer an in-person big show, but like it didn't seem like fans of the Oscars were in any sort of rush to force a big in-person ceremony, which might say something about the general political disposition of people who like the Oscars. Yes. Yeah, I think having, it would be really awful to watch the Oscars and worry that it's a super spreader event the entire time. Like you would much rather them be taking things as seriously as we have stuck in our homes without fancy gowns to wear for nine months. Well, no, I mean, I've been wearing the gowns. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, you you bought it. You might as well get the use out of it. I think the the other... Worry is, you know, Jason Bateman made this joke in his SNL uh, monologue this last weekend, which was it was a pretty good joke where he was like, hey, everyone here have the vaccine already. Oh, just me. Uh, (laughs) You know what I mean? Uh, And I was remembering Bateman at the at the he did such a great job at the Emmys. But like Mm -hmm. um, this idea that like in theory, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't speak to science, but in theory, like, couldn't we see a world where like. <laughs> Please don't fire from this podcast for saying this phrase. Holly, Hollywood elite has already <laughs> had their vaccine and feel like they're safe to do this, even if they maybe medically aren't. And then that that is an even like that would just chafe, I think, even more for people to see like yes. the people who got the vaccine first are able. It's you know in the same way as with the Emmys when they were getting like rapid te- COVID tests on on air, and you're like, this is funny, but also like there's a lot of people who would love to have access to this yeah. rapid COVID test that you're uh, making kind of a joke of. So I don't know. It's um. That that sort of eat the rich vibe <laughs> that might come off of an event like, like that. About how like Obama and Clinton and Bush are all going to get their vaccines early to tell people it's OK. Like if by April we still need that somehow, like let Tom Hanks get up there and get that vaccine. I mean, he'll probably get the vaccine before that. He, he gave his antibodies. He deserves it. But yeah, maybe there's some public health messaging to be wrapped into that that will also make it safe. Yeah, that's a good idea. But like, I just our, my 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 country, my state is currently in a in a really fractious position because we are going into major lockdown. And you know, our governor Gavin Newsom, who I generally support, was caught at like a fancy dinner at the French Laundry with a bunch of people and no masks indoors. And it's just sort of like. That has kicked up a lot of uh, anger in this state. And I'm just like, you you can't 
we we can't watch a bunch of very well healed people mix and mingle in an auditorium if people are still not able to open their businesses and stuff like that. That just seems like I thought the Emmys were really well done. I thought that was a really well done like balance of like we still get this. I think this is still important. I think it still is like something that we can look forward to and and you know for those of us who love it, like, you know, the same way like the the extra precautious like NBA sort of uh, experiment went. But um no. <laughs> a theater like, full of, of ball gown and betuxed people uh, when people are out of work and starving. I don't think that that's the optics that they want. No. Someone suggested this on Twitter. And I'm stealing it with I don't know how to credit it, but like maybe we'll get to the point where every movie can do something like what the Shits Creek cast did at the Emmys, where like you can oh. all gather together in a smaller group, like yeah, like maybe outside, maybe with masks on or something, but like have the Mink party, have the Nomadland party, like have the Minari party, and like let them beam in, and like then you get like some of the vibe of a celebration without a massive group which, of people. Which uh, well heated tent? Uh, which Ooh. movie party would you want to go to, Richard well, and Kate? I just want uh, um, Alan Kim in a tiny little tuxedo. Yeah, I also I also want the Minari tent. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know how I feel about kids at the Oscars, but if it's a kid at a party with just people he knows and likes, in a little might, tuxedo, in and a little us. tuxedo, I, I I might make an exception. All right, Ooh, you'll find party, us at the Minari tent then. That's which fine. party do I want to go to? This is a good question. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if Small X isn't going to get nominated for anything, but that one seems like it would be fun. And I wonder if even maybe like Netflix could have their own like Netflix tent or something. That's like too many that. people, though. That, then you have a super spreader event on your hands. <laughs> a lot of people. If I spend the Oscars at home alone with Eddie Redmayne, does that count as the Chicago 7? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think okay. that's true. I mean, you have to let Sasha okay. Baron Cohen come, though. So yeah, you can do that as, as you need to. Hey, everybody. I'm entertainment journalist Drew Taylor. And I'm filmmaker Charles Hood. And we host Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. But right now, we're about to launch our first ever universe-expanding miniseries. That's right. Get ready for Light the Fuse presents The Directors. We'll speak to filmmakers who have made iconic Paramount movies and get them to open up in a way that only we can. That's right. Listen to Light the Fuse presents The Directors wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode of Little Gold Men is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. They have everything from iconic directors to emerging auteurs. There is always something new to discover because with MUBI, each and every film is hand-selected so you can explore incredible movies streaming anytime, anywhere. 
Right now, they have a film collection for performers we love, and they are highlighting one of this year's Oscar frontrunners, Lily Gladstone. So I am here with David Canfield to talk about how much we love Lily Gladstone, and especially her film that is now on movie, Certain Women. David, fond memories there. Fond memories. What an introduction. None of us knew who she was before that film, um, but it's quite a thing to be in a Kelly Reichardt film with Michelle Williams, Kristen Stewart, and Laura Dern and completely steal it. And uh, now we're talking about it to this day. You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash LittleGoldMen. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash LittleGoldMen for a whole month of great cinema for free. Movie.com slash little gold men. Uh, okay, pivoting off of the Oscars, but not entirely because we want to talk about Wolfwalkers, uh, an animated feature that is on Apple TV Plus now, or is it as of this Friday, Joanna? Oh, um, it's as out of this soon. Friday. Um, anyway, it is uh, from all accounts beautiful and exciting. And you, as I don't know if you would call yourself an animation expert, but I think of you as the animation expert in my life. Um, why is Wolfwalkers so special to you? Oh, my gosh. Okay, so this uh, Wolfwalkers is by Cartoon Saloon, which has just become one of my favorite artistic fonts of of entertainment. They did The Secret of Kells, Song of the Sea, The Breadwinner, and then this is, um, you know, their latest Wolfwalkers. And um, they've got another one in production, My Father's Dragon, which is based on a book that I loved. Um, and that's in production. And they partnered with Netflix for that. They are an independent Irish animation studio. Um, and in, in these, you know, it's hard out here for an independent independent Irish animation studio. So um, they've found these corporate partners in Apple for this film. And uh, Netflix is actually partnering on their next film. So like what I like is that they're not partnering with just one like corporate overlord. They're just sort of like finding these partners. And thus far, they've described the corporate partnership with both Apple and Netflix as like just money, no, <laughs> no, uh, no artistic meddling, which is, you know, sort of the ideal uh, situation. And I know that like these very streaming platforms platforms that we were just talking about are on, you know, are looking out for more animated content because animated content is really globally friendly, right? Because you can redub uh, an animated uh, film in a bunch of different languages and distribute it globally. So that, you know, and it's something you can do during COVID. So, uh, though obviously this is long in the works. Anyway, that's the business side. The The artistic side is that Wolfwalkers is about Cromwell era English occupation of Ireland and this little English family uh, led by Sean Bean basically doing his like Ned Stark war was easier than daughters thing. And then his like little girl. So this little English girl and uh, she is, you know, very intrepid and wants to explore the world. And he's like, you got to stay at home. And then she, of course, explores the world anyway and uh, meets these wolves in the forest. And the wolves are, you know, per Irish folklore are, um, actually, in some cases, people who can turn themselves into wolves, and it, and you know, it's about like, it's a it's a pretty thinly there's there's a there's a character that stands in for Cromwell. It's a pretty thinly veiled sort of like commentary uh, about English occupation of Ireland and also destruction of natural natural Ireland, wild Ireland, and the English occupation, all that sort of stuff like that. But that is very secondary to this like beautiful plot between uh, these two, like a little wolf girl and a little English girl um, and them meeting each other. Like all of Cartoon Saloon stuff, this is just 
absolutely a feast for the eyeballs. Um, Song of the Sea, Secret of Kells, Breadwinner, they were all just like beautiful. But they did one step further with this one where um, they left in or no, they left in and added in some of the like rough animation lines for some of the wilder wolf stuff. So it's just like really interesting, like the wilder you know, our young protagonist gets, the wilder the storyline gets, the, like, more um, rough-hewn the animation gets, but it's still very elegant and beautiful, but it has these, like, rougher lines over it. And I just I just really admire... I, I You know, I did a piece a couple years ago about, like, or maybe just last year, about um, the various animation styles that has helped by the success of Into the Spider-Verse. And obviously Cartoon Saloon was doing their thing before Into the Spider-Verse with this idea of like trying to use animation and the and the art itself to tell the story. Um, no knock on Pixar, but like Pixar's like very smooth approach to something. Uh, and, and Disney Animation Studios sort of like followed uh, the Pixar lead. And so all the Disney and Pixar stuff is very like smooth in the same way. And so these other studios like, you know, like Leica, which does a very different thing, but its own thing, like th- them experimenting with the form uh, is something that I, I respond very positively to. So uh, Wolfwalkers, I'm a huge fan. Richard, what what did you think? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it looks beautiful, and it, it it's really you know I had watched Soul kind of just a few days before watching Wolfwalkers, and I think both have their aesthetic charms, but like, but it was it was sort of startling almost because I haven't seen a lot of hand drawn animation in a while, you know, um, yeah. and just to be like, oh right, there is a different kind of texture and movement and possibility, and and also I think limits. Um, and it's nice to watch a movie have to kind of work within its framework and and to say, you know, we're not going to make this photorealistic because it's hand drawn. So how can we otherwise represent the world and this world we're trying to create? And and I think it's so successful in that. And and something that I also appreciate about the movie, and I, I, I don't know if it's like weird to extrapolate this from a movie about two kids, but like there really feels like there's a queer narrative in the movie. I think because part of it is about like that the people who who become wolves at night, it's not a kind of um, at least it's I took the movie to be saying it's not an active choice. It's like something happens and you just like that's just who you are now, you know, mm. and granted, there is something about like how that power is sort of exchanged that might might kind of sully the queer narrative. But like um but I just, you know, this intense bond between these two girls who really realize that they're 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 quite different and persecuted by the world and and. I really appreciated that in a sort of, you know, like grownups watching children's movies way. Like it just, it just, there was something extra dimensional about it that I really liked. And, you know, there's this beautiful sequence where the two kids are wolf walking or wolf running through the forest at night. And there's this lovely song, I believe, written for the film playing. And that just like brought me back to like being a kid and, and some musical moment in a Disney animated film, like just really transporting me away. And um, so I think that like, if you're home with younger children or even not younger children and, but especially them and, and, and you're kind of a little sick of the usual rotation of, of Pixar and whatever else, you know, put this on if, if you can, if you have Apple TV plus and, and, and I think that my hope would be that it would help introduce a kid to that other wonderful side of animation that I think has gotten short shrift uh, in, in the recent decades. Are you speaking yeah. to me? Yes. Uh, directly. <laughs> yeah. Who could be second home with children? Any day? 
I think also my recent um, education in uh, queer cinema through another project that I've been doing um, helps me identify also this idea of like found family as a very queer narrative that is like very much a part of this uh, story as well. So I love that point of view. I hadn't thought about that at all. The other thing is like, yeah, if your kids love Miyazaki, like like something that Cartoon Saloon is doing. Yeah. It's funny that it's called Cartoon Saloon because it just like, you know, sounds so Western. But like they're they're exporting like these beautiful Irish legends like Song of the Sea, which I think is one of the most gorgeous movies of all times. That and like The Secret of Roninish, which came out when I was like a kid, uh, like are educating people around the world about Selkies, which I think is 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 a really fun uh, legend to learn about. And like similarly, like Wolfwalkers. It's it's just like a really beautiful export of Irish culture in a way that like they're just not being compromising. You know, the breadwinner wasn't wasn't, uh, you know, Irish drenched. But I just think that that's a beautiful thing that that Cartoon Saloon is doing that, like, you know, if your kid watches these movies, they will learn by proxy like about these Irish legends, which I think is a, you know, is a gorgeous thing to do. And um, yeah. so Yeah, I think it's and I think it's especially important that kids learn about Selkies because they do still stock the Irish seas and yeah. um, people need to be aware if they're, you know, ever at sea. Yeah. Look out. Look out for that gorgeous lady. She mm-hmm. might be a seal. <laughs> Richard, when we had you writing about gossip, who was it who kept trying to get kidnapped by the sea? Well, the sea kept trying to kidnap various celebrities. <laughs> yeah. Lena Dunham, one. Jennifer Garner. Joe Jennifer yeah, Garner yeah. is the one. Anne the Hathaway. The, the, sea, yeah. the sea tried to claim all of them. And Do it will we blame never the stop. selkies? I'm sure. I think they're involved. I don't think they're running the show. But. This conspiracy goes all the way to the top, yeah. obviously. Oh, wait. That was a perfect transition because we want to talk about Let Them All Talk, which takes place on the sea. It sure does. Um, wow. You really can't get away from uh, uh, those brandy Wolfwalkers, dips. Apple Plus, Friday. Friday Great. the 11th. Thank you, you for, for verifying. Um, okay, Richard, we talked about Let Them All Talk a little bit last week since you had it on your top 10, but now uh, your review is out. Uh, you have kind of uh, celebrated your affection for uh, heading to the sea with Candace Berg and Diane Weist and Meryl Streep, which is what you had been doing before the pandemic anyway in your free time. So now that there's a movie about it, yeah. we can all <laughs> understand the experience from your perspective. Uh-huh. Um, I So I found this movie like very enjoyable, obviously, for the many qualities you're going to get into, but also like baffling in a way that I haven't been able to totally put my finger on. And I, and I don't want to spoil it for any, for people who haven't seen it, but I would love for you to kind of like tell me why it, why it fully enveloped you uh, when I got held back a little bit. Well, I think first of all, we should know that this is an HBO Max movie. So yes, yes. Put it on the, in the pro column for that streaming uh, platform. <laughs> um, I, I think what initially really thrilled me about the movie was that it was so much more than I was expecting it to be. Um, I have no, there's no love lost between me and like the book clubs of the world. Like I like those movies that are like for and about older ladies and like having fun. Like I think those are, are, I mean, with the exception of like like, Palms, which feels very cynically made. I think those movies are great and, you know, bring them on, you know. And I kind of expected this to be that, even though it was Steven Soderbergh directing, I thought, well, maybe he's just going to kind of do his own little tweak on that kind of frothy comedy uh, with these great um, older actresses. And there is an element of that to it, but you know he worked with Deborah Eisenberg, the um, the fiction writer, uh, and I believe still the partner of Wallace Shawn on the script. And and I, she wrote the script, but I, I, it's my understanding that the movie is somewhat improvised. I can't really tell where the script ends and the improv begins, but it. it I think it, it was one of those. I read the press notes a little bit. I think it's one of those like fifty page script treatment things that okay, you get. Yeah. Um, so there's like a, kind of a blend of the two. Yeah. You know, and it feels very seamless in the actual movie and the movie, you know, hits those fun beats of like Candace Bergen on a cruise ship or Meryl Streep on a cruise ship or Diane Weiss on a cruise ship bickering and bonding and doing whatever. 
And yet there's something deeper to it or a lot deeper to it. It has a real soulfulness to it about, you know, aging and envy and careerism and, uh, you know, Meryl Streep playing this renowned award-winning author. She's on a cruise ship across the Atlantic to accept a really big prize in the UK um, and has brought these two old friends she's not spoken to in years along for mysterious reasons. You know, I think there's a little bit of meta of like Meryl Streep considering her own legacy and Mm -hmm. how that might maybe has like uh, alienated her from the rest of the world, the rest of her community, like, you know, in terms of uh, the profession. And although acting is a much more communal activity than writing books. But um, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff about art and um, and the acting is really good. Gemma Chan plays uh, Meryl Streep's character's book agent and she's terrific. She has this one really great scene with Lucas Hedges. Um, yeah, they're plays, in kind of like yeah. this like caper rom-com kind of happening yeah. in the fringes of it. Yeah. Where like she's not supposed to be on the boat and he's hanging out with her and he's not supposed to. And you're kind of waiting for them to run into each other. And Sorry, you have me a head. Caper, caper rom-com, rom-com. I know, yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And like you don't want to oversell that part of it because like that element is in there. But Richard is right that it's like got this like more mournful overall vibe to it, I think. It does. And it, but, and it has all those component parts of like the ladies hang movie and the, you know, rom-com caper and all that stuff. And and yet it's done with Stoderbergh's, I mean, it looks beautiful in his very, you know, um, singular way. It moves in interesting tempos. And but I think most crucially and what I ultimately really loved about the filmmaking was that it doesn't feel snide. I think that there was yeah. some concern that this would be Soderbergh having a little winky laugh at this kind of project. You know, he actually did bring these actors onto a cruise ship, you know, before COVID uh, to film this. It was kind of viewed when it was reported on as something of a stunt um, in so much as Soderbergh does stunts. But you know Like that, Soderbergh like, doing his grown-ups where he just goes on vacation with his exactly. friends. Exactly. Well, yeah. I mean, and the thing is, he did that with Ocean's 12 and he got That's like, true. and they got raked over the coals for it. You know, when that movie came out, they were like, why do we want to watch all about these bunch of rich assholes like, like hanging out at Lake Como, basically. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that actually Ocean's 12 is actually pretty good in, in retrospect, but but this movie does not have any of that tone. It really feels like it feels like a genuine movie. It really was thought through and has a lot to say and has really gotten the best out of its actors. Yeah, I was struck by something you said. I, I don't I, I think you said this, that like Meryl Streep is kind of playing someone who's like forgotten how to talk like a human being. And, and they she does this like book reading on the boat and they kind of remark on that that she's like giving this monologue about this like perfectly named Welsh poet who no one's ever heard of named uh, Blodwyn Pugh um, mm-hmm. amazing fake name um, and she has this kind of monologue where she like gets into this reverie about this author's work and like it's both weird and pretentious, but, like, it becomes touching in a way, and it's hard to know how much we're supposed to kind of make fun of this character. And I think the characters in the movie also don't know how much to make fun of her because she's a real person, even though she's kind of intolerable in, in a lot of ways. And I think that's one of the things that threw me as I was watching it. It's like, I don't know how funny I'm supposed to find any of this. And then I think as it ends, it really um, kind of pivots into a different direction there. And, 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 like, it makes it feel like a real movie. And it makes it feel like a Soderbergh movie. But it also, I think, is part of what held me at arm's length. But it also makes me really want to revisit it and be like, okay, now that I know that this, where this is going, how can I get on the wavelength of, like, what this movie wants me to think about these people? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think you know, the Street character is tricky. And I think that it's really fun to watch Street play someone that's so complex in a subtle way, you know? Yeah. Um, and... I think its ultimate conclusions without spoiling anything about the particular plot of the movie is that like, yeah, someone can kind of be this aloof, you know, locked up in their success kind of asshole, 
but like they're really smart and talented. And like if they wrote some beautiful novels, like they must have some capacity for empathy, you know? Yeah. And, and you just have to find out how to access it or if they they have to learn how to access it themselves. And and so I don't think the movie comes to any conclusions about that. But I think it's a really gracious consideration and a compassionate consideration of of of, of a kind of celebrity without being overly reverent to it. Yeah. And it's really specific about um, this kind of subplot in it where Candace Bergen's character kind of knows that she is the inspiration for the like big character in Meryl Streep's breakthrough book. And there's a lot of guilt associated with it. And she kind of is on the the boat trying to like wanting to talk about it. And that seems like something that you only know if you're a novelist. And Richard, you've written a novel. And I don't know if that's something that like you really connected to, like the idea that you use people in your life and they don't necessarily have a say in it um, and that it can re- really affect them in that way. And that that just feels so considered and, and accurate for someone who writes books for a living. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm by no means a celebrated novelist, but uh, so I can't really relate. But I, I can say like in the writing experience, like the book that I wrote, uh, which is, you know, a young adult novel that takes place where I grew up in Boston. Every character in that is someone I knew. And like a few people were like uh, reached out, but no one was offended because I think it was seen as loving. But I think that if you make that a practice in your writing, as this character has in the movie uh, for years and years and years, like eventually you're going to hit something where it actually goes way. Not, not, I don't think there is such a thing as too far because again, it is the writer can write what they want to write, but it complicates things and you have to make that decision of whether the art matters more or your personal life matters more, your friendships matter more. And when you make the decision for the art, then it further isolates you and you find yourself in the position that uh, Meryl Streep's character has at the beginning of this movie. Yeah. It's also amazing to watch this back to back with the prom, which, as I've said, I'm a defender of. Mm -hmm. But like the way that she's playing like celebrated person in in both of them and how different those characters are um, and how much more she's doing with it and let them all talk. I think that's pretty undeniable. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say like if you're in the mood for, you know, you've seen Book Club too many times, but you're also feeling like that kind (laughs) of winter melancholy. This should really hit both of those spots, you know. Oh, how much did it make you want to go on the the Queen Mary too? uh, Like, like I have never in my life wanted to go on a cruise. (laughs) Like maybe when I was like a kid and wanted to go on a Disney cruise. But like this is it's elegant. It's like you're going from New York to London or, or, you know, not London. It's it's a crossing. It's very chic. Um, uh, and it's funny because Lucas Hedges is in another movie coming out called French Exit with Michelle Pfeiffer, where they also make that crossing. Uh, so and, weird. And, and I don't like that movie, but, you know, so he has one out of, you know, 50% of his Atlanta crossings have been born fruit, I think. <laughs> that reminds me of, I, I just, I love an elegant film at sea, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, or even the non elegant Do you remember The Imposters, the Stanley Tucci, Oliver Platt film with like Hope Davis, stuff like that? That's yeah. like a, uh, or the musical, obviously anything goes, or like uh, at least two Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movies. Like I just, I do, I love hijinks at sea. Or the, the um, Cuba Gooding Jr. Horatio Sands movie, Good Boat Trip. In the same category, absolutely. Or the Dancing Queen part of Mamma Mia 2. You guys nailed it. This is my aesthetic. (laughs) So um, I'm excited. I'm I'm newly excited for this uh, this film. So to close out the show, uh, as promised, we want to talk about the best TV of the year. Our TV critic, Sonia Soraya, who could not join us today, but she wrote the, her top 10 list of the best TV of the year, which included things you might expect like Better Call Saul and The Plot Against America and The Crown, but also 
Broadway and the NBA, which will tell you what a weird year it's been. Um, I should stop talking because Joanna and Richard, you both watch way more television than I do. I often struggle to think of TV shows that I actually finished this year, um, one of them being The Babysitter's Club. I have no regrets about it. It would probably be on my top 10 list. Um, but either from Sonia's list or your own, like, wh- what are your thoughts when you reflect on, like, what should have been maybe a normal year in television because we had so much we could watch, but still feels kind of odd as we get to the end of it. Well, it's it's fun to look at Sonia's list because she she definitely made an effort to try to capture how TV served us in interesting ways, all being locked up at home. You know, the fact that she has NBA basketball on there, uh, which I mentioned earlier, I think probably inspired by reading her list uh, or Broadway, uh, you know, to reference like the live theater that a lot of us were watching at home or some of us were watching at home. Um, I think that was a really interesting uh, choice you made, but that, you know, and 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 I love that she did that, but it also leaves less room for, uh, you know, straightforward uh, TV shows by design. So I, I would love to shout out some some things that I love. Yeah, I, I'm just it. gonna sh- I'm gonna shout out the the trilogy of Hulu offerings that we got earlier this year that, I, that just really impressed me with the platform, uh, and that is Normal People and Import, but still The Great, uh, which I just loved, and um, High Fidelity, which Hulu already canceled. But uh, those <laughs> those those three shows, uh, like they came out in relatively close proximity, also to Devs, which a lot of people that's FX on Hulu, but um, a lot of people really loved, and uh, it just really it it made it made me think very highly of their curation and their original programming that they have available there. It's obviously uncertain. You know, we're just a couple days away from this. Um, Disney is about to do a, a big sort of end of year business call. And there's some question as to what's going to happen with the future of Hulu uh, and FX and Disney and and their original programming and all of that. It's possible that they might want to try to, like, absorb some of that original programming into their Disney Plus platform to bolster it. That's a theory. I don't have any facts to support that. Rumors, whispers on the wind. So but I would be sad if Hulu went away uh, because uh, I like it as a platform and I really loved those offerings, they, they just had a huge impact on me this year. So those are some of my thoughts. Richard, do you have any thoughts? Well, my first thought is I think I have to finally watch Better Call Saul. Um, <laughs> every year. This happens to me yeah, every year. It's happened to me with the Americans. This is like that all over again. But uh, no, I, I really appreciate that Sonia, like you said, Katie, like did try to think a bit more like wide ranging um, about what, or what, what TV was. And uh, to that extent, you know, she does have small acts, the Steve McQueen series of films that we decided not to put on best movies of the year list. It at least one or two would have been on my list had that, had we not made that decision but anyway. So it's still there, which is great. And people should watch that uh, on Amazon. Um, I, I really like that she, you know, can prize something like the Mandalorian or the crown as highly as she does because they are really, you know, at least this season of the crown, like such masterful entertainment. And I think it's interesting that the number one choice was a show how to with John Wilson, which uh, is kind of a, I mean, she, you know, in her writing, she says docuseries, question mark, mockuseries, spoof, spoof you series. She does. She's not really sure what it is, um, but it's this exploration of New York. And at a time when uh, I guess as the series, the season ends, COVID is happening and, and um, as the city kind of retreats into itself. And I know that like people who live in New York are very self-mythologizing about where they live. But like there is something markedly strange about this particular city being so muted um, for the past almost year. 
And so I think a show that really speaks to that experience uh, in How To with John Wilson, like, I think I, I like that she ends her list with the number one spot being something of kind of ruminative and reflective, but also funny and weird. Um, and then she did um, uh, the uh, uh, like some you know, best of the rest basically. And one of her shows, number 11 actually uh, is speaking of HBO max, uh, a show called I hate Susie with Billy Piper uh, about a celebrity who is involved in a leaked photo scandal. Um, and each episode is structured around one of the stages, I think of grief. Uh, yeah. And it's an incredible piece of work. Billy Piper's amazing. Um, and so I'm glad she highlighted that briefly. Yeah, we uh, Sonia Sonia was on to talk about that. I think when you were out, Richard. So we so if you guys want to hear us go deep on I hate Susie, we did that a couple weeks ago. Uh, I think I thought a really good discussion. Um, did you wind up watching How to with John Wilson, Richard? No, but I, I texted okay. Sonia when her list went up, and I said, "Is it going to be so cringy that I can't watch it?" Kind of like you Nathan texted, for you was. No, you, no, you texted me the same thing. You were yeah. like, "You were like, uh, is it? I just don't like what it was so cute." You were like, "I just don't like watching people be embarrassed." No. You know? No, I, I know. Like, I know exactly what you mean, Richard. <laughs> yeah. And it's really not like that. Yeah. It's okay. just it's like it's so observational. Like a lot of it is him kind of in the narration, like cutting together things. That apparently yeah. he's just a guy who takes his camera with him everywhere, um, and so he's filmed people doing just insane things in the streets of New York, which if you've lived in New York or any major city, really, like, you know, like you if you pay attention, you see crazy stuff. Um, and so it's not these people being called out in the moment of what they're doing. It's him kind of capturing it and and putting it into a context, which I don't think still don't think is very shamey. It's very anti-Borat, I would say. Yeah. And I just, it's it's just a lot of compassionate empathy. And and as the person here who has not lived in New York, I can say that you don't have to have lived in New York to appreciate. You might appreciate it more, maybe. Uh, I can't speak to that. But like, it is just an incredibly human story. He also travels a, a bit uh, yeah. in, in the story outside of New York. Um, but it's just, uh, it's a really, really, really beautiful show. I absolutely loved it. And I love that Sonia put that as her number one. I just thought yeah. it was incredible. And like in a year where, <clears throat> I think we were really seeking out empathy TV and kindness TV, you know, like that I think is part of why Ted Lasso is a big hit. Um, it's it's why people have been responding so well to Shit's Creek, all this sort of stuff, this yeah. idea of just sort of like see other people's differences and their weirdnesses and just and just embrace it and love it and be kind to them and be kind to yourself and um and that that's okay that in and that in this increasingly cynical world uh you know to quote Jeremy Maguire we live in a cynical world like you know it's <laughs> it's okay to do that so yeah although if you do if you do want to indulge your cynicism Sonia's list also includes the plot against America which I I think is I have my in my limited TV viewing this year I think is the best thing that I've seen all year and it is so so cynical and it's period piece where like Hitler spoiler alert doesn't take over the US but it comes pretty close um and especially when it aired pre-election and uh, kind of the note it ended on was like very actively terrifying um but if you feel like you're in a comfortable headspace since the election to to visit it's so good and i feel like really got slept on um this year somehow she also has um i may destroy you on her like best of the rest and uh that to me is like a top tier piece of art that I saw this year. I just can't, I haven't stopped thinking about it since I watched it. So Michaela Coles, I made a story, which is a, which is a tough sit at time, but sort of like, like I hate Susie, like both of them, we talked about this and we talked about, I hate Susie, but like both of them really um, encourage you in maybe the flea bag model to love and embrace uh, a, a woman going through it who may even at her best of times not be, you know, an idyllic uh, woman. And I think that that is uh, 
that is really strong, strong messaging. And, and Michaela Cole telling such a personal story um, is very powerful. So I love that show. And uh, she also has, sorry, I don't okay, <laughs> she, well, she also has We Are Who We Are, which Richard and I did a whole podcast series on. Oh, we're yeah. still watching feed. And uh, Richard and I talked about this on length of, at length on that feed, but I think we were both really surprised by how much we loved uh, that show. That, like, we sort of stumbled into that show. We didn't really know what we were getting into when we started it. Um, and I, it just wound up really, really, really affecting me. Um, and I, you know, I don't think it would have if I hadn't gone on such a deep dive uh, into it with Richard, but um, I just wound up loving that show so much. And that's a show about the summer and fall leading up to the uh, 2016 presidential election. Uh, it's not set in America, but it's that's in the background a lot. And we watched it very nervous about where yes. the 2020 election was going to go. <laughs> and so now, well, maybe let's say after January 20th, you can watch it as a sort of like, now it's a kind of a discreet moment in time. It's not about <laughs> the president. Yeah, it's quite not as about much. the president anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, a good idea. I would also say this is so far afield, it would never, should never responsibly be on anyone's best TV with your list. But one of the greatest pleasures I took from television this year was a show on HDTV called Vacation <laughs> Home Rules with Scott McGillivray, who used to have a show called Income Property. But in this show, he basically helps people who own lake cottages in, Can in mostly Ontario, I think. Uh, they never say exactly where. Uh, you know, rehab their homes so they can better rent them. So basically, it's a how-to guide for Airbnb, but they never say Airbnb. And Airbnb <laughs> is probably an evil business. But, like, that's kind of what's interesting about it. So watch that. Vacation Home Rules. If you just want to watch, like, commerce and action in a kind of gross way. <laughs> oh, yeah. That sounds that sounds like why I still have cable, to be able to watch things like that uh, on HUTV. Um, I also want to shout out, if by any chance... <laughs> you are not in the mood to watch I May Destroy You here at the end of the year if you haven't seen it already and you want something lighter and you haven't already watched it. What we do in the shadows is just such a joy uh, and is just really clever and moves so quickly. And uh, I was so sad when I ran out of what we do in the shadows episodes. Um, and it's coming back next year. You know, I, I can say with certainty versus other shows that I don't know when they'll be back. Yeah. Um, but we'll have more what we do in the shadows uh, next year. And that is just a show that keeps just getting better and better and better. So it's nice to have something for certain to look forward to next year because... God knows it's hard to know what else is coming. <laughs> completely, completely. Uh, that does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. You can find us at VanityFair.com. You can find uh, all of us writing about various things and, and Sonya's top 10 list of television, as we mentioned. And you can find us all on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Richard. Rylaws. And wait, before we go, do you guys want to throw in a quick plug for what Still Watching will be up to for the rest of the year? Uh, yeah, if you want, if you want, you know, speaking of, of TV and all that, if you want to hear, you know, what Richard and I are watching for the rest of the year, we are currently watching a flight attendant. So you can hear us talk about the end of that series, that little romp. Everyone I've told to watch has watched it and like loved it. It seems like a really perfect end of year watch. So flight attendant, do it. Uh, and then also Anthony Bresenkin uh, is popping on uh, here and there to talk about The Mandalorian. There's two more episodes of The Mandalorian. Uh, a, a Sonia Soraya top 10 minted show. Uh, <laughs> so you can hear us talk about that on the Still Watching feed. And then we will be back in the new year. I have some exciting plans, but I haven't told Richard about them yet, so I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, and on that note, uh, this episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best description of how we'll be spending the Zoom holidays goes to Richard Lawson. Bickering and bonding and doing whatever.